Uh, we have been in a series called Knowing Jesus, and John David uh, started it, and uh, normally he would have been up here, but he got sick, and so he called me and asked if I could sub in for today, so I'm glad to do that. It's the early Galilean ministry that we're going to be getting into and covering today. Uh, the way you see, I think, Jesus revealed, and uh, again, the topic is knowing Jesus, just like we sang a while ago. But it's interesting to me the way that his life is revealed to us because so much of what, he, what we know about him is not just from what he says about himself. Now, he does come out and clearly say he's the Son of God, but we mostly come to an awareness of what that means through what he does, the way he interacts with other people. And as we see that, we come to a, a growing awareness of who he is. In fact, we're like the disciples around him. The disciples, it was very much a growing awareness of who Jesus was. And often they were well behind where you would think they might be. Is that okay? Are we okay? Thanks. All right, so it's a growing awareness, and that's what I think we see as we get into the text here. And so what I'll be doing today is more a narrative style. It's going to be more of a story style, and we're going to be focusing more on Luke 4 through 6. You know, there's parallel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very closely parallel. In fact, there'll be certain details of Jesus' life brought out in one that are not in the other, and I'll sometimes fill in some of the gaps that way. But we're going to be focusing on just one text, and that's Luke chapter 4. Je uh, last week, John David brought us up from the time Jesus was 12 years old and uh, took us to the time he had to begun his ministry. Uh, he was sent to John the Baptist uh, when he was 30 years old. And when you think about that, that seems younger to me more and more. Just 30 years old when he started his ministry. I can't help but thinking of my son, Robbie. He's 30 years old. And the thought of, well, anyway, I won't go there. Uh, but anyway, uh, 30 years old, that's really young. And at that time, and by the way, Luke is the only writer that tells us the age of Jesus when he began his ministry. When he's 30 years old, he was sent to John the Baptist, who baptized him according to the Father's will. When that happened, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. And in that, there was a divine testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. So John could go around and say, I know Jesus is the Son of God. The Holy Spirit testified to him being that. And then, as you covered last Sunday, the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted over a 40-day period by the devil. And he was very much tested. The devil tried to nip it in the bud. He tried to just kill Christianity from the very beginning in those temptations. And, of course, he was not successful because Jesus was faithful. And he, as John even brought out last week, he trusted the Father all the way. He was committed to the Father. So the devil was unsuccessful. So he began his uh, ministry. There was an early Judean but then early Galilean is uh, where we're starting and what we're planning to cover today. And uh, you know, I have this map here, and so just to kind of give you some reference here, Mediterranean Sea is way over there. Uh, you have Samaria right in here, and then Judea way down here. And so we're going to focus now on this around the Sea of Galilee area, Capernaum, and uh, we have uh, Nazareth over here where Jesus grew up. So we're going to be referring to those places. And I don't know about you, but I seem to, like, I remember things better if I can uh, nail them to a map somewhere. And so I thought, well, maybe that'll, that'll help us all. So we're starting in, again, in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus, in verse 16, 
uh, came to Nazareth. And I w- I'm going to point this out real quick, though. We do find that Jesus at this time had a house in Capernaum. He actually set up kind of housekeeping in Capernaum. And uh, some would say that even his family, uh, his half-brothers and sisters and mother, lived with him there. Now, I'm not real sure about that part, but we do know that he, he settled in. He kind of home base was going to be at, uh, in Galilee and uh, specifically a house in Capernaum. So in chapter 4, verse 16, he's back in Nazareth, which that's where he grew up after he was a baby. Uh, Actually, when he was a baby, they moved to Nazareth. And so Jesus begins the main part of his ministry right here in Nazareth of Galilee. And we find right off that he is at a synagogue at this time where he's going to be revealing himself in a special way to be the Messiah He came to Nazareth. This is verse 16. I'm going to be paraphrasing a lot of this. And uh, as according to the custom, what they would normally do, by the way, synagogues were meeting places that uh, arose, especially during the time of exile. And every Sabbath or Saturday, we would say, they would have a worship service. And that would be a, a Bible reading and a sermon, an exhortation. And then they would also sing. And they would do that every Sabbath. And so Jesus had done this, no doubt, Many times, and there would be the leader who would select a, a passage or a book, and then he would hand the, the book to someone to read, and then that person would read. Typically, they say standing up, and then when there would be an exhortation part, they would typically sit down cross-legged fashion, like a, a rabbi, teacher, and uh, I'd be in trouble because I'm not that flexible, but anyway, This is something that Jesus, he starts off, he stands up in verse 16, and he began to read. The interesting thing is, and I think this is providential, in verse 17 it says that the prophet Isaiah, the book of Isaiah was open to him. He had the scroll of Isaiah before him. And he turns over to Isaiah chapter 61, and this is verse 18 where he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So he got to that part, and then he just closed up the scroll, and he stood there, and there was like a a pregnant silence there. And everyone just looks at him. It says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They could tell somehow by the either way he read it or or some other awareness that they had that this was something different. This was not just a reading of Isaiah. And then Jesus said in verse 23, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He didn't say, I'm the one, but he said, this this is fulfilled in what I'm doing right here. And of course, the idea was that he is the one that was being referred to He had received there in verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That happened when he was baptized. Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. Then he came and began preaching the gospel, as he goes on to say. He would come and he would be providing sight to the blind, both physically and spiritually. Now, when this happened, in verse 22, it says, uh, I think we see two different reactions here. In verse 22, they were speaking well of him. I know he had a good reputation. He grew up. As a, anyone know what was his, uh, what was his physical, what was his uh, work? Yeah, he's a carpenter. 
His dad, Joseph, was a carpenter, and actually he was a carpenter too. He had apprenticed under his dad. And so here are the people of Nazareth who saw him grow up and be just a carpenter. And first of all, the idea was, hey, that's fascinating. This is, what a guy. This is, so, this is so special. And then it's like right off, they start saying, wait, 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 wait. Uh, we've known him since he was little. We, we, we know his brothers. We know his sisters. We know his mom. We knew his dad. Ah, this is, he's, not, he's nothing special. He's not the Messiah. And it says in Mark's account, Mark 6, that they were, they were offended at him, which meant that they stumbled over him. They turned in deliberate unbelief against him. Now, when they did that, Jesus reacted. In fact, he knew what they're thinking. Verse 23, he says, no doubt you're, you're going to quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, go, go do a bunch of miracles for us right here. Now, Mark's account says that he actually did a few miracles, but he didn't do them like he would normally do in other cities because of their unbelief. And now this is interesting. We're learning some things about how God works. Because we've seen this before where there is a very dug-in, stubborn unbelief. God often doesn't reveal himself so much in those places. And to me, it's almost a form of a judgment. So Jesus just performs a few miracles, but then he also lets them know that he has other people to preach to, that not just Nazareth but, and not just other Jews were going to hear the gospel, but he was actually sent to preach and to bless even non-Jews. Now, that was a pretty tough thing to say to a Jew back in that time. And he goes back to a couple of incidents in the Old Testament where he talks about, for example, verse 25, there was Elijah. Elijah, during a three-and-a-half-year drought, was sent to a widow and he would be providing for the widow during that drought, but he himself would also be provided for. For that whole three and a half years, her flour and her oil never ran out. She was being specially blessed. And Jesus is saying, you know, there were a lot of other widows too in Israel that didn't get that kind of treatment and that kind of blessing. So here's a, a heathen, a non-Israelite being blessed. And then he talked about Naaman the leper. You might remember reading about that during Elisha's time. He was the captain of the Syrian army, which was at the time even at war with Israel. And Elisha was sent to heal him of his leprosy. And there were other lepers that were in Israel that weren't healed, but he was. He's sending a message and letting them know that God loves everybody. The Jews don't have an exclusive claim on him. They were his covenant people, but even in Old Testament time, God has always loved all people, all nations. And he would be blessing all nations, even through the work of Jesus in preaching the gospel. Now, when that happened, that really upset them. And by the way, that'll still upset a lot of Jews today, if you talk about them, if they're unbelieving Jews. So anyway, they got really angry at him, and they started pushing him, and pushing him, pushing him. And they started mobbing up and pushing him pushing him, and keep in mind, this is his hometown, his hometown, they're pushing him to a cliff just outside the city of Nazareth. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus didn't just from the outset say, hey, leave me alone and just leave him. I think he's wanting them to see he's not just the Jesus that grew up among them. They pushed him once they got him to the brow of the hill, and they're tightening up. Of course, the mob is now, they are in a concentrated pack here. 
forcing him off the cliff, then it says that he just walked right through them. Just walked right through them. He is not the little Jesus that they thought they knew. He is the Son of God. He was also, I think, showing us in the bigger picture that he didn't die till he was willing to die. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, uh, you know, I was with you daily in the temple, and you never took me. You tried, but you never got me. But this hour, in the power of darkness, are yours. Jesus died because he submitted to the Father's will. He wasn't overpowered. It wasn't weakness on his part. It was strength to allow himself to be put to death. So we see something about Jesus and the fact that he laid down his life willingly for us, I think, as we look at this particular account. So then he left them, and so he went from Nazareth uh, down to Capernaum, verse 31. So Capernaum is, we're going to go back up to the lake here, and as I said, he ha actually had a house there in Capernaum. So he went from Nazareth up to uh, Capernaum, and once again, it's on a Sabbath day, and he is uh, there. There's teaching going on that he's doing, and as that happens, there's a man. Uh, once again, by the way, there's the same reaction of, this is amazing. Most people were saying, this is incredible. Here is the Messiah among us. And here, in fact, we don't see the resistance that he faced in, in Nazareth. So at this time, as he is there and as he's, as he's healing, uh, there is a man who is a demoniac. He has a demon. Now, a lot of studies have gone into as to what were these demons? And you're going to see these demons, you know, throughout the, the Gospels. What was a demon? And I, from the best thing I can see here is that, uh, or most likely conclusion is that they were fallen angels. They were angelic beings that joined Satan in rebellion against God. They were minions, we might say. Not cute little minions, but they were, are, were and are minions of Satan. Now, at this particular time in history, I believe God released them to be able to possess people so Jesus could demonstrate his power as the Son of God by casting them out. Now, sometimes people say, oh, Jesus was just being accommodating. Actually, it was just sick people, and, you know, they just didn't know back then. They thought every illness was just kind of a demonic thing, you know. But that's actually not true. There are lists where it talks about Jesus healing people, and they'll say he healed the, the, uh, the deaf, and he uh, healed the lame, he raised the dead, and then he healed the demoniacs. See, he didn't say all people who were sick were demoniacs. Now, when people were demon-possessed, often it would manifest itself through, like, epileptic seizures, that sort of thing. But not every case of epilepsy was demon-possessed, and it wasn't even treated that way uh, in the Gospels. So anyway, these were people who were possessed by demons, and then as Jesus would cast the demon out, he would demonstrate his power over Satan and demonstrate that the kingdom of God was coming in, that Satan's kingdom was being overthrown. Now, this significance is brought out in other passages. Now, once people say, well, so are there demons possessing people today? I don't think so. Not from a scriptural standpoint, I don't think so. Zechariah 13, if you want to read this sometime, Zechariah 13 talks about how that when the gospel age would come, that the demon and the prophet would go out of the land. There'd be at some point after Christ came uh, and where the demons then would be removed from the land, and so would prophecy. Now, that, that's kind of interesting there because people think, well, maybe there's prophecy going on today. 
Again, I don't think so. Prophecy had a specific uh, purpose and a specific use, and I believe that was fulfilled in the first century. And there's actually other passages that would bring that out. But again, I'd be glad to talk with you if you have further questions about that. But it did talk about the demon being removed from the land. So I, I don't think that's going on today. I know there's some cases that seem awful strange, but the purpose for the demon possession was specifically for Christ to demonstrate his power as the Son of God as he would cast them out. All right, so he cast the, uh, the demon out, but he also tells the demoniacs when he would cast them out, don't go advertising for me. Now, I don't know if it's because he just doesn't want that kind of advertising or, or what, but in any case, Jesus would tell people, not just the demoniacs, but sometimes he would tell even other people that he healed, like lepers, to not go out and broadcast it. Now, often they did anyway. And the best thing I can see there comparing passages is it was often because Jesus was not able to move about freely uh, if just all of a sudden word came out about his miracles and it just spread through the whole land because he'd get mobbed and he couldn't actually move out as freely as he would like to move. And that's, that seems to be, at least uh, from what I've seen, the reason why Jesus would actually tell certain ones, okay, I've just healed you, but I tell you what, for right now, don't go broadcasting it. Let's, let's just kind of keep that a little more low-key right now. All right, so after that then in verse 38, Jesus leaves the synagogue and he goes to Simon's house. Simon went by another name and that was Peter. All right, Simon Peter's house. And here we find that Simon has a house. In fact, he has a mother-in-law, which means he has a wife. And according to tradition, he had children as well. And they, I believe, are all living here at this time. So Jesus goes over there. And here we see, I think, something else about Jesus. He wasn't just interested in getting a lot of publicity, a lot of public attention. When he would heal, he would also do it at times that were very private. No one else would even know about it. And here he shows his mercy towards Peter's mother-in-law. As he, they request of him, his mother-in-law is very sick with a fever, a high fever, it says. And back in those days especially, even today, a high fever can kill. They made a request that he heal her, and he does. Jesus heals the mother-in-law of this fever. In doing so, he shows, too, he has, it's a manifestation of what we call his sovereignty. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He's lord over all the elements, over all creation. He's lord. And that means even over the microbes, even over the bacteria and the viruses and all that. He's lord of them, too. And here he put this one away just simply from a command. And it says that she immediately arose and started serving. Whenever you've been sick for a while and you're finally over the fever, do you feel like jumping up and doing a bunch of work, getting back to normal? Don't you usually want to crash for about a day and recover? She gets up immediately. She's up on her feet. She's serving, serving the whole family. Again, to me, that's part of the miracle as well. Now, verse 40, this is interesting because right after that happens, now, it says the sun is setting. You may already know this, or maybe not, but the Jewish day starts at 6 o'clock in the afternoon. It doesn't start at midnight the way we do it. It starts at 6 o'clock in the afternoon. So Saturday at 6, 6 p.m., the Sabbath ends. And so you've got 24 hours till the next day. On Sunday at 6 o'clock, then it's Monday. That's how they did things. Now, they were not to work on the Sabbath, and the, the Jewish leaders came up with a lot of traditions, and they came up with one tradition that you couldn't travel very far. You know, you weren't supposed to travel. That's work. So as soon as it's, it's sundown, 
Sabbath's over. So, man, they move, and they all just uh, converge on the house of, it's either Jesus or of Simon Peter here. Mark's account's interesting. It says the whole city gathered at the door. They just amassed with their sick relatives, the, the diseased relatives, and the, the injured, the handicapped relatives. They were just in one big mass outside the door, either of Jesus or, or Peter's house here. Again, it says, while the sun was setting, all who had any sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, and laying his hands on every one of them, he was healing them. And then again, the demons were coming out saying, you are the Son of God, which I meant to bring out too. The demons had a knowledge of Jesus. They knew who he was. We're talking about the spirit world. And not only that, but in fact, earlier they said, have you come to destroy us? In one account, they say, Do you, have you come to destroy us before the time? So the demons know that eventually Christ will come in judgment and cast them into hell with the devil. And they're saying, is that now? Is that what you're going to do now? But it's another testimony to who Jesus is. They knew him as the Son of God. They knew him as deity long before he came to earth. So they're anticipating now this, this judgment that Jesus will bring upon them, that they're powerless to resist. Verse 42, when day came. So it was a long night, my guess is. Lots and lots of people. And Jesus never turned them away. He amazes me, his strength and his patience. I, I think I would have been tempted to say, hey, look, it's been a long day. <clears throat> can you guys come back tomorrow? <laughs> can, we, can we do this tomorrow? I, I'm, I'm really tired. I've had a big day. Been arguing with a lot of Jews. No, I don't know what to say. But anyway, I've, uh, I've had a long day. Can you, can you come back tomorrow? He never did that. He never did that. He somehow managed to get some sleep, but then he tried to get away in verse 42. He departed, went to a lonely place, probably a mountain in that area, and often when he would go off to himself, what would he also do? Why would he do that? What was he doing? He was praying. He was praying, praying to the Father, praying for strength, praying for uh, guidance, whatever. Uh, he had a close relationship with the Father. And often it was just simply to rest. And my guess is that was at least partly the reason here. But as that happened, the multitudes the next morning, man, they're ready to go again. <laughs> they're looking for him. And uh, I can see Jesus, if he's up on the mountain, I can just see him watching them like a bunch of ants probably coming up. And he's thinking, I wonder if they're going to see me. And then all of a sudden, there they are. They're just worming their way up the mountain right to him. And the interesting thing is he doesn't say, and I think probably if I were him, I would have said, where is the nearest cave, you know? But he invited them. They came up to him. And the other thing I think we can see in this passage to me that's significant is they're not just wanting to be healed. They're not just wanting to be healed. They want to hear his word. They want to hear the good news. They want to hear the gospel. Because Jesus went on to say, because they were trying to detain him, and verse 43 says, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And then he left. And he went to Judea briefly. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, he's back. He's all the way back now to Galilee. And again, I'm impressed with that. He might think, well, I know what I went through last time I was here. They wore me out. And, but he doesn't hold back. And he comes back in chapter 5, and it says, verse 1, it came about while the, whole, while the multitude was pressing around him and listening to the word of God. See, once again, why, what are they after? Are they saying, heal me, heal me, heal me? 
They're saying, preach to me. Preach to me. Let me hear your word. Let me hear the gospel. Okay, now, Jen. Jen Blake. I have to tell you, I thought about you when I looked at verse 1. It said the multitude were pressing around him. Several years ago, we were in China together. Anytime we'd go to China, we'd go to English Corner. It's usually a public park where a lot of the Chinese students and business people would come, and they wanted to practice their English. And often there were Americans or British who would be at these parks, and, and we would be among them, and they would practice speaking English. And, and often they were very, very curious uh, about Western ways, and they wanted to talk about celebrities and all the, that sort of thing. But they have no sense of personal space, uh, as Jen will, uh, and, and Joe Linda and others who have gone. They will be right there. And if you're out in the open, you are surrounded literally by 50 to 75 students and uh, other young people completely around you. And you turn, and, and they're right there, right there in your face. And I remember, Jen, <laughs> this is right, right? <laughs> you, you, uh, there's one of the parks you found a building <clears throat> or a pillar, and you backed up to it. So at least you're covered back here. <laughs> you just had you know, this range of people. But Jesus must have felt that too, so don't feel bad. Jesus must have felt that too, because what does he do here in chapter 5? He looks around, and uh, there, is, uh, uh, there are boats. There are boats there. And by the way, real quick, it's called the Lake of Gennesaret. Now, you think, well, wait a minute. It's the Sea of Galilee, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, what's interesting is that it's called a lake according to what city you're at. So if you're at Tiberias, if you're over at Tiberias, uh, the people at Tiberias would call it the Lake of Tiberias. If you're at Gennesaret, it's the Lake of Gennesaret. It'd be kind of like saying uh, Flathead Lake is the Lake of Polson, you know, or the Lake of Big Fork, something like that. So anyway, don't get confused. It's talking about the very same lake. So here's J Jesus, and he sees boats, and there's a boat belongs to Peter and Andrew and then one to James and John. And so Jesus gets into the boat of Peter, and he gets out a little ways, gets a little bit of distance, and then he just preaches. He just preaches to the people. I want, I want to encourage us that I think there's still a lot of people today who really want to hear the gospel. Sometimes we get very discouraged by that and think, well, they just don't care. They just want some other kind of help. Well, you know, these people here obviously wanted help, and they got it, but they also wanted the gospel. And uh, whether they want to or not around here, Jesus does tell us to preach and teach at every opportunity that we can get. So here it is, Jesus preaching to them from the boat. And then after a while, he, he dis dismisses them. And uh, this is interesting. He turns his attention to his disciples. As the, and he hasn't even actually officially called them yet. But he wants them to grow in their awareness of who he is. And so he has Peter take his boat and push it out, uh, row out into the sea, row out in, into the Sea of Galilee. And he said, uh, hey, let's go fishing. Let's, let's catch some fish. And Peter says, well, you know, we, we fished all night, didn't catch a thing, but because you say to do it, we'll do it. And by the way, I think that shows that Peter already had some, he had already been called, I think, one time by Jesus. So they put out in the boat, and then as, the, as you remember, they have this incredible catch, and they're trying to pull all these fish in, and they can't do it, and they yelled at James and John on the beach. It's like, get in your boat, get out here and help us. And so they get out there, and then they load the fish into the boats both boats, and all of a sudden, both boats are doing what? They're sinking. They're going down. Now, you might ask, well, why in the world? I mean, Jesus obviously performed a miracle. Why in the world have it where it's so overboard, literally, <laughs> where it's actually sinking their boats? 
I, I think the point is, Jesus wants them to know this is not some natural phenomenon, that this is not just some thing that, that just happened to happen. The miracles were for the purpose of demonstrating the working of God. So you want to be sure they understood this is God working. This isn't just some phenomenon. And so they get and they start loading the boats up and, and get them back to shore. And Peter, in verse 8, just is overwhelmed because he gets it. He gets it. This was God working, and the God that was working is the one that was standing in his boat. And that was Jesus. And so he falls down before Jesus, and he says, Depart from me, verse 8. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In the presence of God, we sinners feel the wrath of God. That is because we know we're sinners. And he felt that. Jesus assures him not to fear. Jesus is there not to judge. He's there to save. And what's interesting is that he goes on to say, come and follow me. He says, from now on, verse 11, you're, or verse 10, you're going to be catching men. From now on, you're not catching fish. You're going to be catching men. And did you know it's an interesting Greek word used there? Instead of catch, just a regular, there's other words of just catch, there's, there was a specific Greek word that meant to take them alive, to take them alive. When they'd go out and preach the gospel and convert people to Christ, they were going to be taking people alive. And that's what we do when we preach the gospel. We're catching men. We're taking people alive. We're giving them life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, we're going to be catching men from here on. In verse 11, it says, they then left all and they followed him. Verse 12 is a leprosy. And something else, I'm mostly wanting to bring out character, the character of Jesus in these accounts. Jesus, at this, in this uh, chapter uh, 5 and verse 12, Jesus heals a man who's full of leprosy. Have you ever seen pictures of people covered with leprosy? Yeah, everyone's seen that? I think we probably have. Like in Africa, you can see pictures now, Google images, and it's awful. You know, there's body parts are consumed. It's not just the skin. They're consumed by that leprosy. It was horrible, horrible disease. And it was a disease, though, that afflicted people in many ways. When Jesus and this person comes to him, he knows of Jesus, he has faith in Jesus, and he says to him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You can heal me. I know you can. You've got the power. And it says that Jesus stretched out his hand and, and he touched him saying, I am willing, be cleaned. And immediately he was clean. Had you ever thought about the significance of Jesus touching him? What is it besides their flesh being consumed, what is it that most lepers, especially here, really missed? Physical touch, right? Social contact. Lepers were isolated. They were but outside the camp, they had no physical contact, no human touch. And that had to be at least as bad and at least as painful as the disease itself. There are a lot of times when Jesus healed people, he didn't touch them. But here he did. I think there's a reason for that. This man didn't just need physical healing. He needed that kind of intimacy that comes from human touch. He touched him and he healed him. That says something to us, I think, about Jesus. The word continued to spread. Chapter 17, things start to develop. There's the clash with the Jewish leaders, and here's where we see that start to really 
develop and take off. In verse 17, it came about one day as he's teaching. Now, listen to look at, look at the crowd here that comes to him. And by the way, I think he's in his own house here on, at Capernaum. I think he's in his own home in Capernaum when this happens. So he's going to be teaching, and there's Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And he knew what he was facing. They weren't there because they were being kind. They were there because they were looking for something to discredit him. And yet Jesus proceeds anyway. Now, as he's preaching there, he noticed there's kind of a commotion upstairs or on top of his house. There was, as it turned out, there was a man who was paralyzed, and he had some good friends who were going to help him out. He wanted to get in front of Jesus. They wanted to get their buddy in front of Jesus so Jesus would heal him. And so the house is packed. They can't get through. So being innovative, they climb up on top of the house, and they figure, let's see, Jesus is probably right there. And they began removing tiles. They began to dismantle his roof. Uh, to me, that's, I, I'm not, see, I'm trying to think if, if, if it was me, I would say, hey, guys, make way here. Hey, you. I go, I was like, cut. tell you what, come on down. Let's, let's, let's go ahead and take care of this healing right now. Don't tear my roof up, man. And, uh, but they dismantled his roof, and he just waited. And they lowered this paralyzed man through the roof down in front of Jesus. Now, when this happened, it says in verse 20, Jesus seeing their faith, not just the paralyzed man's faith, but the other faith that was manifested by his, their buddy, his buddies. And he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Well, now we've kind of ratcheted up things a little bit. He's not just healing people. He's also forgiving people. Now, the healing people itself testified to Jesus being God, but now he's exercising the prerogative only of God. It also shows, too, and I think it's a message to us, that as we go about doing good works, if we, if we leave Jesus out of the equation, all it is is humanitarian, humanitarian efforts. It's just humanitarian. We do a lot of good works, and it's really good, but we need to keep in mind the spiritual side. Jesus certainly did. Jesus was not just interested in making people a little more comfortable here on earth, but he wanted them to be saved. That's what he was ultimately always after. He forgave this man's sins. As we do good works, I want to encourage all of us to always pray. Whatever we're doing, whoever we're helping, always pray, God, open the door for me. Please, God, open the door for me so I might save that person. Call him by name and pray that God would work through that good work. Otherwise, all we're doing is humanitarian work, which everybody does, and it's not, not necessarily to the glory of God. So anyway, he turns to him and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, verse 21, that's all the Pharisees needed to hear because then they turned to him and said, blasphemy. Now, if Jesus weren't God, would that be blasphemy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Only God can forgive sins. They were right about that. The problem was Jesus was God, so it wasn't blasphemy. And he had proven by his works that he was God. So that's where they were wrong. Jesus was the Son of God. And so Jesus says in verse 22, why are you, because he knew what they're thinking, why are you reasoning in your hearts? And then he says, which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven or to say rise and walk? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, right? What's hard to say is rise and walk because then they've got to do it. And if they don't do it, then that shows that you're a phony. And so Jesus, he says, 
in verse 24, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he turns to the paralyzed man and says, I say to you, rise, take up your stretcher, and go home. And at once he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And again, the people were amazed with astonishment. And by the way, I thought at first, was that the Pharisees too that were amazed? No, a parallel account says the multitudes were. I don't think it included them. Uh, They didn't get really what they were looking for here with Jesus. Verse 27, Jesus at this time is calling. He would call certain individuals to follow him. And then later on, he'll do an official naming of the 12 disciples. He's called Peter and Andrew and James and John. And he's called Philip. Philip went and found Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew. So that's, this is going on now. So Jesus is calling Levi here. And who is Levi? What's another name for Levi? We'd call him Matthew. Yeah, he's also called Matthew. And Levi, it says here, is a tax collector. Now, was that a, did that have a really good reputation? Uh, no, not at all, because tax ca- collectors were often thought of as traitors to the, by the Jews because they were collecting taxes for the Roman government and often would overcharge. They would steal from people. And so here Jesus is calling a tax collector to be one of his disciples. And um, it says in verse 28 that he left everything and followed. And he probably left a substantial income in order to follow Jesus. So now, verse 29, this is interesting because Matthew knows who Jesus is, obviously. And Matthew wants to set up a scene where Jesus can, can go after some other people. That is, he can spread the gospel, save more souls. So it says that Levi or Matthew in verse 29 throws a reception for Jesus in his house, and there's a great crowd of tax collectors. He's pretty popular with other tax collectors and other people who are reclining at the table with them. By the way, when they would eat, the table would be short, and typically they would be lying a way that we're taught not to eat on their elbow, and then they're eating. That's, that's the way they would typically eat. So they're reclining at table. And it's a big party, a big celebration here, a banquet. It's an amazing time for socializing. And so that's, but he's doing this so Jesus would have another opportunity to save souls. Don't we ever do this today where we have social gatherings and, and have Christians present that might be able to strike up a conversation and possibly share Jesus, share the gospel with those who are there? It's an excellent way that we can uh, spread the gospel. And so anyway, verse 30, the Pharisees are right there getting ready to judge him, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? What are you doing socializing with these outcasts, these marginalized people? We don't do anything. We don't have anything to do with them. By the way, you know what a Pharisee is? You know what the name means? Does anybody know Pharisee? It means separated ones, separated ones. It doesn't mean separated from sin. It means separated from sinners. Does God want us to be separated from sinners? Absolutely not. How do we save them? But that's how the Pharisees did things. That's why they came down on Jesus, because he would not separate himself from the sinners, though they themselves, of course, were some of the biggest sinners. So Jesus tells them, you know what? It's not those who are well that need a physician. It's those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I'm not here just to socialize. I'm here to save people, to heal people spiritually. That's why we get with people today. Uh, I know 
Joe and John David, they play on a softball team, and I know others do too, but they play on not just one team, but they play on another one that has a lot of people who are not Christians on it. And after the game, they'll share a beer with them. Why do they do that? Well, they're trying, they're looking for an opportunity. They want to share the gospel with them. And so we do, we, we look for opportunities, and we're intentional about it. Try to set up opportunities where we can share the gospel with people. Chapter 6, just drop down, we'll move it up a little bit more. Chapter 6, it came about Jesus is going through the grain fields with his disciples, and they're hungry, and, and so they pick some of the grain and they eat it. Well, it's on the Sabbath. Not supposed to work on the Sabbath, are you? That's what they're told. But once again, they miss the, the import of the law. The Sabbath was a day of, of what? Rest, right? And therefore, the Sabbath was a day that was meant for the welfare of people, right? It was the welfare of people. It wasn't just some kind of law to kind of cramp our style. It was for the welfare of people. I love the idea of resting one day a week. We don't, we're not under Sabbath still, but that sounds great to me. The Sabbath was to protect people. So Jesus is saying, you know, by the way, there's precedent. He says back in the Old Testament, David and his men ate the showbread out of the temple. Did you know that priests were only supposed, they're supposed to be the only ones eating that showbread. But they were hungry. They need to eat. And therefore, the way to your provision of the law, he called it, a law of, of mercy and kindness and justice, that took precedence over that law that said don't eat the showbread. There are weightier provisions of the law that take precedent over some of the, the less weighty laws. And he's saying that's the case here. The Sabbath was made for man. They need to eat. And so they weren't sinning by breaking the Sabbath in that particular way. I'm going to wrap it up with verse 12. Again, there's other accounts here. We see uh, I, I will say in verse 6, we see another thing about Jesus' character. Here's where the Pharisees actually set up a miracle on the Sabbath because they were saying you can't heal on the Sabbath. You can't do good things on the Sabbath. That's work, which, of course, they're wrong on that. But anyway, what's bad about in, in, in chapter 6 is these Pharisees set it up where they could point the finger at Jesus. They were still wrong, but they set up deliberately a case where Jesus would do something that they could jump on. They had a man with a withered hand. They, they put him right in front of Jesus. And they, it's like they're daring Jesus to heal him because it's the Sabbath. And they're going to jump on Jesus. And it says, I believe in Mark's account, that Jesus, looking at that and knowing their motive, he felt anger. Do you ever feel anger? Indignation? We should. There are times where it's entirely appropriate. And Jesus felt anger. They were heartless. They say they love God, but by their action, they show they don't love God at all because they don't love people. And, of course, Jesus healed the man and, again, showed that the Sabbath is not violated by doing good. It's for the welfare of man. All right, let's close with uh, verse 12. Here's where Jesus, first of all, he goes, he's about to select his 12. He's, he's been calling a lot of people just kind of randomly to follow him. And uh, he's going to meet up with them at the Sea of Galilee at the mountain there. But the night before he makes the selection, he goes up to the mountain to pray. And I, I do believe he's wanting that very close intimacy and guidance from the Father. 
And so all night he spends in prayer. Do you ever do that before big decisions? I think that's one example he's setting for us here. If you have any major decision, especially in your life, spend time praying and maybe fasting with it. Just pray it and really turn it over to God before you actually make that decision. So Jesus does that. He prays all night. He's with the Father. And then the next day, he calls his disciples to him. He's got several there. And he selects them. And here we have the official name of the apostles. Simon, and that's, of course, called Peter. Peter meaning rock. Simon and, and uh, Peter and Andrew. James and John. Philip, Bartholomew. Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus. Simon, who's called a zealot. Judas and Judas Iscariot. Now, just reading, even just zipping over like that, you've probably got several different images of these people, and the, probably those images were not the most complimentary, right, if you knew the people. When you think about Peter, do you think of a model character? You think of someone who's probably impulsive, unstable, uh, someone who, in fact, had did, he had denied Jesus when Jesus was arrested? Is that exemplary? Probably not. And then you have James and John. Jesus called them sons of thunder. One time they wanted to just call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans. Lovely apostles, right? <laughs> we have Philip, Bartholomew. Bartholomew or is also, is, he was called Nathaniel. By the way, Bar is son of, they're giving his last name here, son of Ty, Bar Ptolemy, son of Ptolemy. That's his last name. First name was Nathaniel, Nathaniel Bartholomew. John's account, it says that Nathaniel is the one we heard about Jesus coming from Nazareth. He said, do you remember? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Does this sound like he might be just an exemplary apostle there? And then we get to Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a military faction. They were known to put a dagger under their, their robes and walk up to a Roman soldier and jab him. Zealots. Again, what a motley crew here, right? What a motley crew. And they had their weaknesses, they had their faults, they had their sins. But Jesus called them to be his apostles. And with all their weaknesses, they were committed to him. They were committed to him. To the extent that in Ephesians 2, we're told that they formed the foundation of the church, the foundation of the temple of God with Christ, the chief cornerstone. The apostles, with all their variety and with all of their weaknesses, were still committed to Christ and saved many, many souls, helped write the scriptures here, which continued to save souls. To me, that's kind of like a little microcosm of what would come after, and that is the church. As a church, aren't we kind of a motley crew? Yeah, we sure are. Do we have our weaknesses? We sure do. I know I do. Do we have our faults? Yep. Have our sins? Yeah. By the power of the Spirit, we're always trying to grow. But God calls us all together in one body, one body. All over the whole world, we're one body to work together, to love each other, and to bear fruit together. It's a wonderful thing to think of. doesn't matter your nature, your, your nationality. doesn't matter your background. 
In fact, in Christ, whatever your background is, God will use it in a special way to help you to be fruitful. What a wonderful God we have. What a wise God that we have. What a merciful God that we serve. Let's bow. Holy Father, I thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for your Son. And Father, we thank you for enabling us to know Jesus through these Gospels. Father, continue to guide us and help us to understand Jesus. Help us to know his character and help that character to be more and more our character as we live from day to day. Help us to relate to others the way that he related to all the different people that were in his world. And help us through the saving of souls, especially to, to win to glorify you. Help them to see, the whole world to see your love and your mercy and your holiness. And we pray this in Jesus' name.